0: You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from The Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at The Architects' Journal. And I'm Hattie's
1: co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture.
0: In this episode of Climate Champions, we're taking a break from our landscape series to bring you an interview with the author of an important new book out this week.
2: Coal in my book is a bit like the devil in Paradise Lost. It's a sort of reluctant hero that we know is actually the bad one, but that has the extraordinary capacity to change everything and advance the plot and revolutionize the world in the case of coal. And the effects of cheap heat on architecture have been utterly revolutionary in most ways, in a good way. The one downside is the potential to wipe us off the planet.
0: (laughs) Our guest today is Barnabas Calder, an architectural historian and senior lecturer at Liverpool University. His new book, architecture from prehistory to the climate emergency examines how architecture through the ages was shaped by the energy sources available at the time. It revisits architectural history from the earliest known ancient city of Uruk in central Iraq all the way to Cork House, a prototype all-cork house in Berkshire, which was shortlisted for the 2019 Sterling Prize. Barnabas's book is an engaging and sweeping panorama which takes in the Egyptians, the Romans, Song Dynasty China, a mosque in Mali, the glorious Gothic cathedrals, and more. The narrative really comes into its own in Barnabas's descriptions of his home city of Liverpool, the grandiose achievement of the Albert Dock, and the city's Georgian terraces, all enabled by coal. Barnabas, we are delighted to have you on the podcast today. Your book makes me think of seminal books like Bernard Rudofsky's Architecture Without Architects, or Rainer Benham's The Architecture of the Well-Tempered Environment, which shifted the canon of architectural history. But yours is also a call to arms, which is unusual for an architectural history. What sparked your passion for this subject?
2: Indirectly, essentially, I've always been... Uh, fascinated by architectural history I felt very very lucky to manage to make a career in it a few years ago I was starting to think of ideas for a big uh, history of architecture uh, because Pelican were looking for one and I was thinking through what the major issues of today were that might make a good lens through which to look at the past and I couldn't escape the fact that energy use is the great crisis of our day, Uh, bigger than all the other problems that sustainability seeks to address. It's the one that could wipe us out. And uh, so I did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation on the amount of energy that it must have taken to build the largest of all the ancient monuments, the Pyramid of Khufu, the, the biggest of the Pyramids of Giza. And discovered when I then read up a bit about energy use in contemporary buildings that it used uh, a smaller amount of energy than a uh, normal contemporary American university building would expect to use in its 80 year lifespan from construction through operation to demolition. And it knocked my socks off as a as a fact uh, that we were clearly living in a period of such extraordinarily anomalous energy use and that these ph- phenomenally challenging monuments of the past had been achieved with so much less energy use. Uh, and therefore, I started reading energy history and an amazing book by um, Kanda Malanima and Ward called Power to the People, that just take you through in numerical and economic terms the effects of energy change over the last few centuries and it's you can't unsee it once you once you've read these things you can't unsee the extent to which the world has been totally shaped by our energy change in a way that is bigger than any other factor that's changed history
1: because the the argument that architecture is, is shaped by the energy sources available to a society seems so obvious when you hear it, but I've still never really thought of it before. You give the example of how centralised power in ancient Egypt um, versus a quasi-democratic system in ancient Greece um, shaped the pyramids in the Parthenon in, in different ways. Could you elaborate on this? Yeah, I mean... I
2: started working on this in 2015 and i've been terrified ever since that the speed of academic research and writing and publication would be uh, slow enough to mean that i'd get scooped by someone else who'd <laughs> spotted it because it is so obvious as you say once you start to think in those terms and actually amazingly uh, i'm still um, still the first out with it and there are very few other people who are working on it at all although i think it's just starting to spread now yeah the uh, The relationships between energy and architecture are so deeply ingrained. The first building in the book is, in fact, uh, built out of energy waste products. It's a mammoth bone hut built by mammoth hunters uh, who use the leftovers from their uh, food energy gathering uh, and their fire energy gathering because they burnt mammoth bones for warmth as well, which must have smelt spectacularly rough. And the the link between energy and buildings never weakens from there. As you say, at all levels, from the very macro scale of uh, how Khufu happened to be the person who had the power to uh, build this ridiculously big building, through to the details of the tools available at the time because of the poverty of heat in ancient Egypt that meant that they tried to use as little heat input as they could in these large monuments, but they had very, very abundant labour and therefore everything about that building is designed to be produced by enormous quantities of human muscle power and very little of anything else. And uh, these changes in social structures that come with energy change that uh, hunter-gatherer groups, with the acknowledgement that there's a very limited amount of evidence on some aspects of hunter-gatherer groups of ancient times, but uh, seem overwhelmingly to be unhierarchical, whereas agrarian uh, energy regimes with with an energy surplus of grain tend to produce a very, very steep hierarchy where somewhere between 5 and 20 percent of the population don't farm, and the top of that 5 to 20 percent are enormously powerful in a very, very spectacularly unjust way and almost everyone else just farms and farms and farms to produce the uh, the food for themselves and the hierarchy above them. And that seems to be a structure that's completely inescapable to the point where even the ancient Greek experiment with trying to achieve something more democratic is in fact an oligarchy with a tiny proportion of the total population of ancient Athens being the citizens who uh, who got this much-faunted democracy.
1: And you also talk about how ancient Rome, by conquering Egypt, was able to draw on the fertility of the Nile Delta as an energy boom for the development of ancient Rome. I've also heard Patrick Wyman describe the the impact of changes uh, to climate as contributing to the fall of Rome. Um, Could you tell us more about that?
2: Yes, the buildings you know of from ancient Rome, and almost all the ruins that survive, are from that period after the Battle of Actium when Antony and Cleopatra were defeated and uh, Egypt became a personal property of the emperor, uh, of the first emperor and then of his successors. And the Rome imported truly spectacular quantities of grain, not just from Egypt, but from all of North Africa, from Sicily and Sardinia very heavily as well. And uh, the enormous urban population that that supported in Rome, around a million people, according to uh, numerous estimates, uh, was by far the biggest city that was to exist in Europe before uh, before coal increased city size. And uh, that led not only to the capacity to build on a very large scale, it led to strong incentives too. So if you look at a project like the Baths of Caracalla, which is one of the biggest of all of the ancient Roman monuments. Uh, It is partly a way of making use of labor that otherwise sits around doing nothing. The famous bread and circuses formulation that the Roman people were pacified by entertainments and by a food supply is only two parts of a three-part pacification structure, the third of which is job creation. And building a very large project with a clever technology set that de-skills the labour and therefore enables people from the ordinary urban working class, if that's not too anachronistic a term, the urban poor, to start work very quickly. This enables you to build at an enormous scale for hardly more than the cost that you're already spending subsidising these people by feeding them. So essentially it's a way of turning uh, people who you're feeding anyway to a productive activity you could see it in positive or negative terms i think either would be to some extent anachronistic because trying to think your way into the morality of a uh, an ancient agrarian society is genuinely challenging because the things they were facing were different from ours we can see some of the things they were doing wrong but we can't see all the things they were doing right the bars of caracalla are very cleverly designed to look as though they're made with enormous amounts of very skilled labour and very exotic materials, but actually that's a tiny proportion of what's going on in those buildings. They're coated, once they're finished, with a thin layer of marble and other exotic stones that have come a long way from Egypt in uh, large quantities. But uh, that's 0.5% of their volume, according to the amazing reverse quantity surveying job that the uh, archaeologist um, Janet Delane has done on that building. It's a phenomenal piece of research and it reveals that 0.5% of the volume is special stones, though that's what you see when you look at the finished building. Almost all of it, 76% of it, is uh, stone and, and other minerals from within 20 kilometres of the site. So transport is very limited, And uh, it's just a project of enormous amounts of labour to stack it all up. And the thing they're most keen to avoid is heat inputs. So though when you look at those ancient Roman buildings, what you see is a brick building because there's a brick layer underneath the marble. The marble's long since been stolen and put on a Baroque church. The brick survives and so that's what you see. But the brick too is a very thin layer that's just there in order to reduce the skill inputs and speed up. The project of building these very large buildings, almost all of the building, is uh, local stone used as rubble inside it with the concrete to bind it. And the lime for the concrete is only 3.2% of the entire building volume because it requires a lot of heat. And the brick is only 2.7% of the entire building volume, however visible it looks. It's a tiny amount because, again, it requires lots of heat. And heat before fossil fuels means chopping down trees, and you need enormous amounts of heat for cooking in a city of a million people. Even though it's a warm place and you don't need that much for heating, you have to f- provide cooked food every day for all those people because human beings uh, are incapable of surviving long term without cooked food. And that is such a big pressure for. F- Cooking heat and industrial heat that they try and minimize the amount of heat you use for anything else. And so, this enormous building is produced using abundant labor that they actively want to sump somewhere, and using um, flashy materials in tiny quantities but very ostentatiously, and uh, heat requiring materials in the smallest quantities possible that's consistent with producing a building that'll still be there 2,000 years later.
0: I'm going to jump forward a few centuries. You mentioned coal. The increase in the use of coal after the Great Fire of London transformed English cities, which you describe as the march of bricks and mortar. Timber was also needed for shipbuilding, and 17th century monarchs explicitly enforced a shift from timber to coal for industry that is a massive change in the energy context. It's no longer about human and animal muscle power, suddenly it's fossil fuel energy. Can you elaborate how this plays out?
2: Yeah, coal in my book is a bit like the devil in Paradise Lost. It's a sort of reluctant hero that we know is actually the bad one but that has the extraordinary capacity to change everything and advance the plot and revolutionize the world in the case of coal and the effects of cheap heat on architecture have been utterly revolutionary in most ways in a good way the one downside is the potential to wipe us off the planet (laughs) which is a substantial downside and a, a rapidly growing one as we get closer and closer to, the, to, a, to a catastrophic tipping point. But in all its effects up to then, it's had extraordinarily positive qualities. So the replacement of wood and um, animal dung and thatch as main building materials for a city like London, where you don't have good stone locally with brick and tile and good glass windows, which obviously also require a lot of heat and metal building components, Uh, these produced a fireproof, high-quality, vermin-resistant city that would have been unrecognisable to the people who had suffered in the previous uh, several millennia of London. And it, it also has subtler effects, like the fact that London stayed within its Roman walls for the entire period until coal became a really big energy input into London in the 16th century, after which it exploded beyond those walls very very rapidly and that's partly because of the cheap building materials available because all you need to achieve the march of bricks and mortar which is a, a wonderful cartoon that um, Elizabeth McKellar stresses in her brilliant research on Georgian London and uh, the br- march of bricks and mortar is achieved by cheap coal added to locally available clay and that pr- can produce any amount of good fireproof materials. The other thing that you need to get a city that big, though, is to find a balance of um, land use in the area around it. And the sudden fact that you didn't need to grow firewood in those enormous quantities, a medieval city as far north as London of 10,000 people required 10,000 hectares of firewood cops in the areas around it. And that's a a real limiting factor. So no city got as big as Rome without Rome's grain imports in Europe until coal. And after coal, all that woodland can become farmland. Uh, And the farming processes are, get into a kind of uh, self-reinforcing circle where more metal tools for the farming, more capacity for science to start to inform Uh, the very first generations of science with all the new tools for chemical experimentation produced by good quality glass and good quality metalwork and so on in that period in late 17th century London. You get this self-reinforcing circle of improved farm yields and more farmland and then when trains kick in as well and steamboats and canning, you the limits come off completely and half the world ends up having some role in feeding London as a result of London's being the capital of that enormous, devastating British empire and the trains being able to bring fresh milk and fresh uh, fish and so on from the sea every morning. So uh, fossil fuels change the entire landscape of uh, what cities can be.
0: I also wanted to ask you about the drawings in your book because your text is interspersed with line drawings to scale, I believe, and um, in the later chapters, they get bigger and bigger until they don't really fit on the page anymore. How did you develop these drawings?
2: We wanted the book to be very affordable because uh, the message is so important and because we wanted to invade architecture schools and help people to teach a history curriculum that starts to take into account this utterly central question of the present day. Uh, And on both grounds, getting the price down seemed really important. So I started thinking a long time ago about ways of producing a book that would still be a pleasure to hold and a pleasure to use despite cheap paper and black and white uh, print and photos don't tend to do very well in that circumstance. So there's plenty of photos through the book, but they're kind of supporting information rather than main visual uh, punch. And once I started to think in terms of drawings, I suddenly realized that scale was such a big part of the story of this book, how big buildings are. So the mammoth bone Hut is uh, absolutely tiny and you can hardly make out the details. And as you say, some of the later buildings Uh, carry on for pages or bust straight through the top of the page and uh, reappear at the bottom of the following page. Uh, And I think it's a very good way of making that kind of um, change understandable to non-experts, which this book's very strongly intended to do.
1: Architects often have ideas about what is honourable in architecture. So when factories could stamp out decoration by the yard, And it started to be seen as something fake and a bit dishonourable rather than something kind of carefully made by craftspeople. Um, So uh, how do you see the start of the modern movement in terms of energy use? Uh, I think the modern
2: movement in terms of energy use is an absolute continuum with Victorian architecture. There's no category shift between the two. The reason why the aesthetic of the modern movement bursts out is in large part because of the different timings of industrial revolutions in different places. So Britain had been industrially revolving uh, (laughs) uh, since the um, 18th century, and it was a very, very rapid and shocking process, as my Liverpool chapter explores, but not as shocking and sudden as when it then hit um, Germany, Italy, uh, and in part France in the later 19th century with incredibly rapid change. Uh, and the speed of change hitting these places with a much more mature fossil fuel kit available of cars starting to be realistic, aeroplanes kicking in uh, right at the start of the 20th century. Uh, futurism is such a clear outcome of this absolute shockwave of new technologies. When you read the Futurist Manifesto, the points themselves of the manifesto are all uh, related to energy in one way or another. But I think modernism is the effect of these energy revolutions hitting all at once, and of the social change that comes with these energy revolutions that by and large coal fueled economies saw an improvement in the conditions of the worse off over time and a narrowing gap between the fairly wealthy and the um, and the relatively poor in a way that agrarian economies had always kept an enormous gap and a very small group at the top. But the the top grew in coal-fuelled economies and the bottom got less abjectly poor. Not that the people in the worst slums weren't suffering appallingly, but when you look at pictures of those terrible slums, they're still built of fireproof brick. They have glass windows, they have um, uh, metal fireplace surrounds and sometimes even cooking ranges in them. They are physically much more robust. Uh, the, The people living in them lived in a cash economy, not in a barter economy, even when they were desperately poor. And a tiny bit above them, uh, the people were materially better off than the whole, uh, than almost all the peasant classes of agrarian history. Uh, even though they might have been squashed into poor housing by the level of competition for that housing, you still see that improvement. And by the 1960s, you're seeing it really playing out across uh, right-wing and left-wing administrations worldwide. That places with big coal fueled industrial economies have um, better housing for ordinary people being deliberately built by governments. They have um, a a systematic uh, development of attempts at welfare state and so on.
0: But the consensus now is that as a society, globally actually, we'll need to use a lot less energy so so that we'll have enough to go around. And there is an aspect to sustainable architecture and natural building that sets itself in opposition to the aesthetic and design priorities of, say, mainstream architecture. Do you think lower energy building will have a different aesthetic?
2: I think in a country like ours, where we've got so many robust existing buildings, most low energy building can have exactly the aesthetic of the buildings that are currently there. Your own retro first um, campaign is exactly spot on that we need to keep everything we can keep there should be an assumption within planning law that you keep the existing building unless a case can be made based on a uh, an lca for replacement uh, with a very short repayment time on the uh, lost fossil fuels of produce on the carbon emissions of producing the new building it's crazy that we don't have that it's so simple and so obvious and it, it will be unpopular with some people but you know we're We don't have to listen to the lobbyists of the industries who want to carry on with uh, very intense consumption. Uh, And we have to sort this out. This is potentially the biggest crime ever committed by humans against other humans if we don't sort this out. uh, In terms of this scale of uh, appallingness of the outcomes and the number of people involved... Uh, And just because we're committing it against our children and grandchildren rather than against people who uh, look different or live in another country, it doesn't make it less of a crime now that we know that's what we're doing. Uh, And the buildings of the future that are genuinely zero carbon will be very different. Yes, we are at the moment at a stage in the development of a zero carbon set of styles. If you know. If such a frivolous idea is still relevant, which I think it is, um, we're at the stage that modernism was at when it was uh, sort of Voysey starting to take a few twiddles off his arts and crafts houses. We're not yet at the point where we're getting anywhere close to a serious um, uh, large scale building. Uh, sustainable architecture because our thinking is still almost entirely modernist and our schools are still teaching modernist stuff and uh, most of our journal activity is still celebrating fundamentally uh, modernist ideas of how you produce buildings. Even the improvements in operational energy are being produced by modernist means of technology and uh, magical materials. That dreadful, terrifying thing that... um, Mies van der Rohe said uh, about how it was the engineer's responsibility to make the heat go where it was supposed to go. (laughs) And that attitude is still widespread, essentially. People wouldn't say it in quite those terms anymore. Uh, And the refusal to acknowledge, you know, the the acceptance of this kind of tobacco industry-style clouding of the waters with all sorts of optimistic hopes for future zero-carbon concrete and so on, well, until it's there... We've got to stop using this stuff and certainly stop using it frivolously. It's probably still going to be crucial for some things like containing sea level rise uh, in places where, where there's very large population centres. Uh, so we really have got to stop using it for speculative flats that replace terrace housing and all this kind of you know incredibly wasteful uses that it's currently being used for. So I think things like um, materials that are... Uh, zero carbon or carbon sequestering Uh, and things like rethinking the ways we think about thermal comfort there's some really interesting work going on in relation to uh, the history of architecture and thermal comfort. Jack Wee Chan is looking at it for um, for the kind of tropical modernism's attempt to spread European norms of temperature around world's buildings which has produced a uh, an air conditioning dependency that's deranged across uh, the whole of the hot world. Rannell Lawrence and Robin Pender are both doing really interesting work on uh, pre-modern European uh, forms of um, comfort condition securing through architectural design.
1: Because your your book looks all through history and all over the world for, for the examples that it uses... Um, and something I've been thinking about in my own practice is how traditional Japanese architecture has long been an influence on modern architecture in the West as a highly sophisticated tradition. But it's one that also uses really low energy materials like timber and mud and bamboo, but put together using aesthetic systems that make very beautiful results. Um, are there other examples you can think of to, uh, in terms of looking for aesthetic inspiration?
2: You can stick with Japan for thermal inspiration as well. I mean, when you think about how cold Japanese winters are, uh, the fact that paper walls were the traditional housing model and therefore they weren't heating the air inside, they were heating the human, uh, is a hugely inspiring possibility for not having to get to the same scale of every house domestic retrofit. If we can help ourselves to understand the l- very long-standing traditions of heating humans not space and not heating every wall until it feels comfortable to walk past but heating the person enough to mean that they that the cold air around doesn't matter and that is um it's actually something i experimented with myself um, when living in glasgow uh, a few years ago i tried not turning my heating on for a couple of winters and uh it caused um i hope my landlords never catch this podcast but it probably did cause the odd bit of damp um issue from condensation in the kitchen but uh I got by by running up the stairs when I got back to the flat uh to the third floor which gave me two hours of warmth um by wearing a hat uh, a woolly hat and thin gloves to type because your knuckles otherwise get a bit slow and by having three duvets on the bed was enough to be okay and um it wasn't as comfortable as a fully centrally heated flat but it was an awful lot lower carbon um so uh, i think we can adapt our norms and i found everywhere else horribly overheated for, for that couple of years in terms of aesthetic inspirations i think they're they're charmingly locally inflected because uh, different areas traditional architectures they're not I'm not suggesting some kind of universal return to pre-coal uh, techniques in all respects but I am suggesting an examination of pre-coal techniques in every part of every, in every region of every country to look for things that worked well before so london needs not to go back to flammable timber and thatch but uh, Britain as a whole could learn quite a lot from earlier techniques of staying warm uh, and uh, the different parts of Britain can look for their local materials an awful lot of Britain has good building stone in it and stone is 20 times better than concrete in terms of its strength to carbon ratio according to um, Steve Webb's brilliant work on stone and sustainability.
0: Yes, we had him on an earlier episode. Your last chapter is very ambitious and brings us up to the climate emergency. And it's unusual to hear an architectural historian talking about things like operational and embodied carbon. One of your footnotes refers readers to the Passive House Trust, this type of applied guidance is really not something you usually find in architectural history books. How did you arrive at this blend of, you know, revisiting architectural history and incorporating this sense of urgency about what has to be done?
2: I think the question is more how anyone can avoid it. In the circumstances where we are looking down the barrel of humanity's biggest ever collective challenge, uh, the... Discomfort of not doing anything about it is so enormous and the clarity of the situation is so great. You know, that sustainability as a term is very complicated because it involves all sorts of things, but uh, zero carbon is extremely simple. It's not simple to achieve, but it's extremely simple to understand. And uh, if you have a platform, then what else should you do but shout about this most urgent of all human challenges and this biggest of all human challenges in the whole of human history uh, because it is simple and it is achievable It, but it requires everyone to be, or very, very large majority of, of uh, human beings in, particularly in rich countries like ours, to be actively pushing for the solution we all need to vote on the basis of it in a well-informed way the way we're not fooled by people mumbling about future zero carbon net zero carbon targets based on dodgy offsetting theories and uh and kicking it down the road for someone else to sort out uh, and these are these things are so clear when you find out a bit more about it that i couldn't leave this book with just a kind of inference for people who know a lot about contemporary architecture to draw from it. This is a book that's aimed at the widest possible public beyond architectural architects and architecture students, and at architecture students from their first year onwards, who need to get to grips with this. And therefore, the I couldn't tell the rest of the story without the punchline. Which is that uh, Cole is the kind of anti hero of the book, and we really you couldn 't leave off the last chapter, which makes clear what a catastrophe we 're heading towards with our current terribly strongly inbound habits of business as usual, uh, which really are going to uh, going to annihilate us if we don 't take the challenge and the, the wonderful thing as the cork house shows and the really exciting thing and the, the best way to think about all this is that a better world can come out of this in so many ways it's not just kind of putting yourself on the cabbage soup diet for, for humanity's uh, entire way of life uh, it's changing to a healthier planet in a way that has all sorts of positives and architecture Coming, you know, revolutionary periods in architecture are where all the excitement is. There is a slot available for the Le Corbusier of sustainability right now to emerge as a, a person or team or group who produce truly thought through revolutionary architecture, which has changed in every respect from our current habits and that can spread very quickly as we saw from modernism. It doesn't take long to revolutionize what people are doing but we don't have very long either so uh, so yeah i i can't leave it at uh, sort of 1960 when things were hitting their worst point in energy use terms uh, which we're still in now i had to take it on to the hope for a uh, a very very rapid revolution now
0: okay let me ask you one more thing are there other examples besides cork house of, of new buildings that you think are pointing the way to what zero carbon buildings could be like?
2: I think there's lots and lots of buildings that are doing some things right. Uh, the reason I love Cork House so much is because it's trying so hard to do everything right. And th- in a way, the very smallness of it in that series of scale illustrations through the book the the building before it is the building that's got the largest internal usable area of any building in the world which is an enormous kind of multi-use commercial building in China and it takes five pages or so of of illustration at the same scale as the other, other illustrations through the book and then the last illustration in the book is the cork house drawn to the same scale and it's absolutely tiny you couldn't mistake it for a full stop but it's nearer that scale than to page scale and uh, the the two messages that I get from that are firstly that small actually is a good thing Uh, we've decided not to move from our quite small standard uh, working class terraced house in Liverpool uh, but to spend the money we would have spent moving up in the usual kind of you know uh, academic salary you move up every few years Um, to a bigger house in in a city like Liverpool where prices aren't particularly high. Uh, Instead, we're going to stay in the same one because smaller is actually a virtue in itself. Um, So I think there's some wonderful retrofit projects going on. Uh, I think there's all sorts of exciting things going on in all sorts of projects, but there are very few examples that I've come across, uh, and I am speaking as a historian rather than as a practitioner and someone who obsessively follows the current situation, but there are very few which have the whole life thought that makes the cork house so remarkable, complete with its dismantle at the end and so on. But the number of really, really good architects who are seriously trying to improve the situation uh, the I think clients and regulation are a bigger barrier to this than, and insurance, I guess, are bigger barriers to this than architects. There are an awful lot of architects who want to do the right thing, who are informing themselves. I think ACAN is just brilliant. I love their work. I love their events. I love the whole way they uh, they organise things in this really cooperative unshowy effective well-informed way and that whole generation of architects because an awful lot of them are kind of next level down people in existing big commercial practices and they are just bursting to get out and do what they know they need to do but the the insurance the um, regulations and the client ignorance so far are the big obstacles to this and we just need to uh, get enough people to care about this to make it worth sorting that out against the power of existing industry lobbying for lack of change.
0: Thank you, Barnabas. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Barnabas Calder's book, Architecture from Prehistory to the Climate Emergency, is published by Pelican. Its release is time to coincide with the Society of Architectural Historians of Great Britain's annual conference, which takes place over a fortnight in June. Supported by ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, and Architects Declare, this year's conference theme is Architectural History and Climate Emergency. For full details of the program, go to www. SAHGB.org.uk forward slash Symposium 2021. Join us in a fortnight for the next episode of Climate Champions, where we are speaking to inspirational landscape architect Joe Gibbons of JNL Gibbons about why trees matter, urban forestry, and how architects and landscape architects can better collaborate to green our cities. You can find out more about Barnabas Calder on the Climate Champions webpage at architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you can also send comments and subscribe. Please do subscribe and rate us on your favorite platform, because it helps listeners find us and enables climate champions to keep going. Thanks for listening.